Love Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. To download the Gist of Freedom shows, visit us at our iTunes page at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 7, William Peel, Elias William Box Peel Jones. Arrived per Erickson line of steamers, wrapped in straw and boxed up, April 1859. William is 25 years of age, unmistakably colored, good-looking, rather under the medium size, and of pleasing manners. William had himself boxed up by a near relative and forwarded by the Erickson line of steamers. He gave the slip to Robert H. Carr, his owner, a grocer and commission merchant, after this wise and for the following reasons. For some time previous, his master had been selling off his slaves every now and then, the same as other groceries, and this admonished William that he was liable to be in the market any day. Consequently, he preferred the box to the auction block. He did not complain of having been treated very badly by Carr, but felt that no man was safe while owned by another. In fact, he, quote, hated the very name of the slaveholder, unquote. The limit of the box not admitting of straightening himself out, he was taken with the cramp on the road, suffered indescribable misery, and had his faith taxed to the utmost. Indeed, was brought to the very verge of screaming aloud ere relief came. However, he controlled himself, though only for a short season, for before a great while an excessive faintness came over him. Here nature became quite exhausted. He thought he must die, but his time had not yet come. After a severe struggle, he revived, but only to encounter a third ordeal no less painful than the one through which he had just passed. Next, a very cold chill came over him, which seemed almost to freeze the very blood in his veins and gave him intense agony, from which he only found relief on awaking, having actually fallen asleep in that condition. Finally, however, he arrived at Philadelphia on a steamer, Sabbath morning. A devoted friend of his, expecting him, engaged a carriage and repaired to the wharf for the box. The bill of lading and the receipt he had with him, and likewise knew where the box was located on the boat. Although he well knew freight was not usually delivered on Sunday, yet his deep solicitude for the safety of his friend determined him to do all that lay in his power to rescue him from his perilous situation. Handing his bill of lading to the proper officer of the boat, he asked if he could get the freight that it called for. The officer looked at the bill and said, No, we do not deliver freight on Sunday. But, noticing the anxiety of the man, he asked him if he would know if he were to see it. Slowly, fearing that too much interest manifested might excite suspicion, he replied, I think I should. Deliberately looking around amongst all the freight, he discovered the box and said, I think that is it there. Said officer stepped to it, looked at the directions on it, then at the bill of lading and said, That is right, take it along. 
Here the interest in these two bosoms was thrilling in the highest degree, but the size of the box was too large for the carriage, and the driver refused to take it. Nearly an hour and a half was spent in looking for a furniture car. Finally, one was procured, and again the box was laid hold of by the occupant's particular friend, when, to his dread alarm, the poor fellow gave a sudden cough. At this startling circumstance he dropped the box, equally as quick, although dreadfully frightened, and, as if helped by some invisible agency, he commenced singing, Hush, my babe, lie still and slumber, with the most apparent indifference, at the same time slowly making his way from the box. Soon his fear subsided, and it was presumed that no one was any the wiser on account of the accident or coughing. Thus, after summoning courage, he laid hold of the box a third time, and the Rubicon was passed. The car driver, totally ignorant of the contents of the box, drove to the number to which he was directed to take it, left it, and went about his business. Now is a moment of intense interest, now of inexpressible delight. The box is open, the straw removed, and the poor fellow is loosed, and is rejoicing. I will venture to say, as mortal never did rejoice, who had not been in similar peril. This particular friend was scarcely less overjoyed, however, and their joys did not abate for several hours, nor was it confined to themselves, for two invited members of the Vigilance Committee also partook of a full share. The boxman was named William Jones. He was boxed up in Baltimore by the friend who received him at the wharf, who did not come in the boat with him, but came in the cars and met him at the wharf. The trial in the box lasted just seventeen hours before victory was achieved. Jones was well cared for by the Vigilance Committee and sent on his way rejoicing, feeling that resolution, underground railroad, and liberty were invaluable. On his way to Canada, he stopped at Albany, and the subjoined letter gives his view of things from that point. Mr. Still, I take this opportunity of writing a few lines to you, hoping that they may find you in good health and family. I am well at present, and doing well at present. I am now in a store and getting $16 a month at the present. I feel very much obliged to you and your family for your kindness to me while I was with you. I have got along without any trouble at all. I am now in Albany City. Give my love to Mrs. and Mr. Miller, and tell them I am very much obliged to them for their kindness. Give my love to my brother, Nor Jones. Tell him I should like to hear from him very much, and he must write. Tell him to give my love to all my particular friends, and tell them I should like to see them very much. Tell them that he must come to see me, for I want to see him for something very particular. Please answer this letter as soon as possible, and excuse me for not writing sooner, as I don't write myself. No more at the present. William Jones Direct to 100-125 Lydas Street. His good friend returned to Baltimore the same day the boxman started for the north, and immediately dispatched through the post the following brief letters worded in Underground Railroad parables. Baltimore, April 16, 1859. W. Still. Dear brother, I have taken the opportunity of writing you these few lines to inform you that I am well and hoping these few lines may find you enjoying the same good blessing. Please to write me word at what time was it when Israel went to Jericho. I am very anxious to hear, for there is a mighty host will pass over you, and I, my brother, will sing hallelujah. I shall notify you when the great catastrophe shall take place. No more at the present, 
but remain your brother, N.L.J. End of section 7. Section 19. Henry Box Brown. Arrived by Adams Express. Although the name of Henry Box Brown has been echoed over the land for a number of years, and the simple facts connected with his marvelous escape from slavery in a box published widely through the medium of anti-slavery papers. Nevertheless, it is not unreasonable to suppose that very little is generally known in relation to this case. Briefly, the facts are these, which doubtless have never before been fully published. Brown was a man of invention as well as a hero. In point of interest, however, his case is no more remarkable than many others. Indeed, neither before nor after escaping did he suffer one half what many others have experienced. He was decidedly an unhappy piece of property in the city of Richmond, Virginia. In the condition of a slave, he felt that it would be impossible for him to remain. Full well did he know, however, that it was no holiday task to escape the vigilance of Virginia slave hunters or the wrath of an enraged master for committing the unpardonable sin of attempting to escape to a land of liberty. So Brown counted well the cost before venturing upon this hazardous undertaking. Ordinary modes of travel, he concluded, might prove disastrous to his hopes. He, therefore, hit upon a new invention altogether, which was to have himself boxed up and forwarded to Philadelphia direct by express. The size of the box, and how it was to be made to fit him most comfortably, was of his own ordering. Two feet, eight inches deep, two feet wide, and three feet long were the exact dimensions of the box, lined with bays. His resources with regard to food and water consisted of the following, one bladder of water and a few small biscuits. His mechanical implement to meet the death struggle for fresh air, all told, was one large gimlet. Satisfied that it would be far better to peril his life for freedom in this way than to remain under the galling yoke of slavery, he entered his box, which was safely nailed up and hooped with five hickory hoops, and was then addressed by his next friend, James A. Smith, a shoe dealer, to William H. Johnson, Arch Street, Philadelphia, marked this side up with care. In this condition, he was sent to Adams Express office in a dray, and thence by Overland Express to Philadelphia. It was 26 hours from the time he left Richmond until his arrival in the city of brotherly love. The notice, this side up, etc., did not avail with the different expressmen who hesitated not to handle the box in the usual rough manner common to this class of men. For a while they actually had the box upside down and had him on his head for miles. A few days before he was expected, certain intimation was conveyed to a member of the vigilance committee that a box might be expected by the three o'clock morning train from the south, which might contain a man. One of the most serious walks he ever took, and they had not been few, to meet and accompany the passengers, he took at half-past two o'clock that morning to the depot. Not once, but for more than a score of times, he fancied the slave would be dead. 
he anxiously looked while the freight was being unloaded from the cars to see if he could recognize a box that might contain a man one alone had that appearance and he confessed it really seemed as if there was the scent of death about it but on inquiry he soon learned that it was not the one he was looking after and he was free to say he experienced a marked sense of relief that same afternoon however he received from richmond a telegram which read thus your case of goods is shipped and will arrive to-morrow morning at this exciting juncture of affairs mr mckim who had been engineering this important undertaking deemed it expedient to change the program slightly in one particular at least to ensure greater safety instead of having a member of the committee go again to the depot for the box which might excite suspicion it was decided that it would be safest to have the express bring it direct to the anti-slavery office but all apprehension of danger did not now disappear for there was no room to suppose that adam's express office had any sympathy with the abolitionist or the fugitive consequently for mr mckim to appear personally at the express office to give direction with reference to the coming of a box from richmond which would be directed to arch street and yet not intended for that street but for the anti-slavery office at one hundred and seven north fifth street it needed of course no great discernment to foresee that a step of this kind was wholly impracticable and that a more indirect and covert method would have to be adopted in this dreadful crisis mr mckim with his usual good judgment and remarkably quick strategical mind especially in matters per pertaining to the u g r r hit upon the following plan namely to go to his friend e m davis who was then extensively engaged in mercantile business and relate the circumstances footnote e m davis was a member of the executive committee of the pennsylvania anti-slavery society and a long-tried abolitionist son-in-law of james and lucretia mott End footnote. having daily intercourse with said adams express office and being well acquainted with the firm and some of the drivers mr davis could as mr mckim thought talk about boxes freight etc from any part of the country without risk mr davis heard mr mckim's plan and instantly approved of it and was heartily at his service dan an irishman one of adam's express drivers is just the fellow to go to the depot after the box said davis he drinks a little too much whiskey sometimes but he will do anything i ask him to do promptly and obligingly i'll trust dan for i believe he is the very man the difficulty which mr mckim had been so anxious to overcome was thus pretty well settled it was agreed that dan should go after the box next morning before daylight and bring it to the anti-slavery office direct and to make it all the more agreeable for dan to get up out of his warm bed and go on his errand before day it was decided that he should have a five-dollar gold piece for himself thus these preliminaries having been satisfactorily arranged it only remained for mr davis to see dan and give him instruction accordingly etc next morning according to arrangement the box was at the anti-slavery office in due time the witnesses present to behold the resurrection were j m mckim professor c d cleveland lewis thompson and the writer
Mr. McKim was deeply interested, but having been long identified with the anti-slavery cause as one of its oldest and ablest advocates in the darkest days of slavery and mobs, and always found by the side of the fugitive to counsel and succour, he was on this occasion perfectly composed. Professor Cleveland, however, was greatly moved. His zeal and earnestness in the cause of freedom, especially in rendering aid to passengers, knew no limit. Ordinarily, he could not too often visit these travelers, shake them too warmly by the hand, or impart to them too freely of his substance to aid them on their journey. But now his emotion was overpowering. Mr. Thompson of the firm of Mary Hugh and Thompson, about the only printers in the city who for many years dared to print such incendiary documents as anti-slavery papers and pamphlets, one of the truest friends of the slave, was composed and prepared to witness the scene. All was quiet. The door had been safely locked. The proceedings commenced. Mr. McKim rapped quietly on the lid of the box and called out, All right! Instantly came the answer from within, All right, sir! The witnesses will never forget that moment. Saw and hatchet quickly had the five hickory hoops cut and lit off, and the marvelous resurrection of Brown ensued. Rising up in his box, he reached out his hand, saying, How do you do, gentlemen? The little assemblage hardly knew what to think or do at the moment. He was about as wet as if he had come up out of the Delaware. Very soon he remarked that, before leaving Richmond, he had selected for his arrival him, if he lived, the psalm beginning with these words, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my prayer. And most touchingly did he sing the psalm, much to his own relief, as well as to the delight of his small audience. He was then christened Henry Box Brown, and soon afterwards was sent to the hospital residence of James Mott and E.M. Davis on Ninth Street, where, it is needless to say, he met a most cordial reception from Mrs. Lucretia Mott and her household. Clothing and creature comforts were furnished in abundance, and delight and joy filled all hearts in that stronghold of philanthropy. As he had been so long doubled up in the box, he needed to promenade considerably in the fresh air. Sir James Mott put one of his broad-brim hats on his head and tendered him the hospitalities of his yard as well as his house, and while Brown promenaded the yard flushed with victory, great was the joy of his friends. After his visit at Mr. Mott's, he spent two days with the writer, and then took his departure for Boston, evidently feeling quite conscious of the wonderful feat he had performed, and at the same time it may be safely said that those who witnessed this strange resurrection were not only elated at his success, but were made to sympathize more deeply than ever before with a slave. Also the noble-hearted Smith, who boxed him up, was made to rejoice over Brown's victory and was thereby encouraged to render similar service to two other young bondmen who appealed to him for deliverance. But, unfortunately, in this attempt the undertaking proved a failure. Two boxes containing the young men alluded to above, after having been duly expressed in some distance on the road, were, through the agency of the telegraph, betrayed, and the heroic young fugitives were captured in their boxes 
and dragged back to hopeless bondage. Consequently, through this deplorable failure, Samuel A. Smith was arrested, imprisoned, and was called upon to suffer severely, as may be seen from the subjoined correspondence taken from the New York Tribune soon after his release from the penitentiary. The Deliverer of Box Brown Meeting of the Colored Citizens of Philadelphia Correspondence of the New York Tribune Philadelphia, Saturday, July 5, 1856 Samuel A. Smith, who boxed up Henry Box Brown in Richmond, Virginia, and forwarded him by Overland Express to Philadelphia, and who was arrested and convicted eight years ago for boxing up two other slaves also directed to Philadelphia, having served out his imprisonment in the penitentiary, was released on the 18th Ultimo and arrived in the city on the 21st. Though he lost all his property, though he was refused witnesses on his trial, no officer could be found who would serve a summons on a witness. Though for five long months in hot weather, he was kept heavily chained in a cell four by eight feet in dimensions. Though he received five dreadful stabs aimed at his heart by a bribed assassin, nevertheless he still rejoices in the motives which prompted him to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free. Having resided nearly all his life in the South, where he had traveled and seen much of the peculiar institution, and had witnessed the most horrid enormities inflicted upon the slave, whose cries were ever ringing in his ears, and for whom he had the warmest sympathy, Mr. Smith could not refrain from believing that the black man, as well as the white, had God-given rights. Consequently, he was not accustomed to shed tears when a poor creature escaped from his kind master, nor was he willing to turn a deaf ear to his appeals and groans when he knew he was thirsting for freedom. From 1828 up to the day he was incarcerated, many had sought his aid and counsel, nor had they sought in vain. In various places he operated with success. In Richmond, however, it seemed expedient to invent a new plan for certain emergencies. Hence, the box and express plan was devised, at the instance of a few heroic slaves who had manifested their willingness to die in a box on the road to liberty rather than continue longer under the yoke. But these heroes fell into the power of their enemies. Mr. Smith had not been long in the penitentiary before he had fully gained the esteem and confidence of the superintendent and other officers. Finding him to be humane and generous-hearted, showing kindness toward all, especially in buying bread, etc., for the starving prisoners, and by a timely note of warning which had saved the life of one of the keepers, for whose destruction a bold plot had been arranged, the officers felt disposed to show him such favors as the law would allow. But their good intentions were soon frustrated. The Inquisition, commonly called the legislature, being in session in Richmond, hearing that the superintendent had been speaking well of Smith, and circulating a petition for his pardon, indignantly demanded to know if the rumor was well-founded. Two weeks were spent by the Inquisition, and many witnesses were placed upon oath to solemnly testify in the matter. 
One of the keepers swore that his life had been saved by Smith. Colonel Morgan, the superintendent, frequently testified in writing and verbally to Smith's good deportment, acknowledging that he had circulated petitions, etc., and took the position that he sincerely believed that it would be to the interests of the institution to pardon him, calling the attention of the Inquisition at the same time to the fact that not unfrequently pardons had been granted to criminals under the sentence of death for the most cold-blooded murder to say nothing of other gross crimes. The effort for pardon was soon abandoned for the following reason given by the governor. I can't and I won't pardon him. In view of the unparalleled injustice which Mr. S. had suffered, as well as on account of the aid he had rendered to the slaves, on his arrival in the city, the colored citizens of Philadelphia felt that he was entitled to sympathy and aid, and straightway invited him to remain a few days until arrangements could be made for a mass meeting to receive him. Accordingly, on last Monday evening, a mass meeting convened in the Israel Church, and the Reverend William T. Cato was called to the chair, and William Still was appointed secretary. The chairman briefly stated the object of the meeting. Having lived in the South, he claimed to know something of the workings of the oppressive system of slavery generally, and declared that, notwithstanding the many exposures of the evil which came under his own observation, the most vivid descriptions fell far short of the realities his own eyes had witnessed. He then introduced Mr. Smith, who arose and in a plain manner briefly told his story, assuring the audience that he had always hated slavery and had taken great pleasure in helping many out of it, and though he had suffered much physically and pecuniarily for the cause's sake, yet he murmured not, but rejoiced in what he had done. After taking his seat, addresses were made by the Reverend S. Smith, Messrs. Kennard, Brunner, Bradway, and others. The following preamble and resolutions were adopted. Whereas, we, the colored citizens of Philadelphia, have among us Samuel A. Smith, who was incarcerated over seven years in the Richmond Penitentiary for doing an act that was honorable to his feelings and his sense of justice and humanity, therefore, resolved that we welcome him to this city as a martyr to the cause of freedom, resolved that we heartily tender him our gratitude for the good he has done to our suffering race, resolved that we sympathize with him in his losses and sufferings in the cause of the poor, downtrodden slave, W.S. During his stay in Philadelphia, on this occasion he stopped for about a fortnight with the writer, and it was most gratifying to learn from him that he was no new worker on the UGRR, but that he had long hated slavery thoroughly, and although surrounded with perils on every side, he had not failed to help a poor slave whenever the opportunity was presented. Pecuniary aid, to some extent, was rendered him in the city, for which he was grateful, and after being united in marriage by William H. Furness, D.D., to a lady who had remained faithful to him through all his sore trials and sufferings, 
He took his departure for western New York with a good conscience and an unshaken faith in the belief that in aiding his fellow man to freedom he had but simply obeyed the word of him who taught man to do unto others as he would be done by. End of section 19 
I'm afraid. 